Good day. Welcome to the Corey Morgan Show as we head our way up towards the holiday season. Man, it's creeping up fast this year. Still so far very brown in Calgary. we got no snow going on. It's not looking terribly winter, Christmassy, or festive. I'm kind of enjoying that, but I guess eventually we'll have to get the, the moisture in the ground. I'm, I'm sure it'll catch up with us. Uh, of course, the climate change folks are saying the world's going to end and you know we'll we'll all dry up and just blow away but I, i'm not too worried about that but all the same we could use sometimes a little bit of snow make things look a little better i know some other parts of the province are getting it though so yeah we got lots to cover lots of news it's pushing right up into the new year this year uh, stuff going on in parliament stuff going on in alberta stuff going on in dubai with all those uh, environmentalists enjoying themselves in luxury good to see that uh, for those joining live we see karen there saying good morning and good morning to you and uh is it Corinne? I'm not too sure of the pronunciation of that one. And uh, yes, it's a good time to remind you, use that comment scroll, guys, if you're on live. I like seeing it. Send the questions to me for my guests or just uh, comment with each other. Just make sure to keep things civil, you know? You don't have to scrap with each other all the time. We can do it a lot of the time, but not in there. All right. Later on, I'm going to have a guest on, uh, Tim Moen. He's been on before. He was the leader of the Libertarian Party of Canada. He's been a paramedic for a long, long time. And uh, we're going to talk, he wrote a great long article on his Substack about uh, uh, EMS and healthcare reform. And I just really wanted to go further into that. I mean, somebody who works on, we always hear about the front lines. Well, let's talk about somebody who's actually working on those front lines. And with Tim being on the show, I know Jane will be tuning in for sure. So I got to behave myself better than usual with the rest of the program as things go. So let me talk about though what the show has been titled about. And good to see you there, Jordan and uh, John popping in. And uh, as you see, I was basically saying Trudeau has gone down, but he's not out. And we can't count him out. Oh, I want to count him out. I want to see him gone. I've never made a secret of that. But, uh, you know, slippery like an eel, he's not gone. And I'm going to kind of explain why. I mean, in the polls, he's just, you know, getting decimated. He's, he's, it looks like he's going to, you know, his government would be wiped out if an election was held tomorrow. The problem is an election, if it's held, is probably going to be two years away. Now, I'll explain why. So let's talk about Canadians. Everybody, everybody's an environmentalist, or at least they are until it comes time to pay the bill. Then the tune changes dramatically. So, I mean, the Trudeau regime, lately they've been discovering the hard way that support for the government's continuing with its uh, freefall and public support. Climate change, I mean, it doesn't mean a damn thing to Canadians when they can't make the rent or fill the refrigerator. Canadians are drawing that link now between uh, the, the economically damaging climate taxes and policies and the difficulty they're having in making ends meet. And they're taking it out on the federal Liberals. A recent polling, though, shows that still 72% of Canadians are concerned about climate change. Concerned. But, you know, they, they, they aren't dismissing it or, or whatnot. But when they see, when, when you measure by what's your top issue, only 5% of Canadians see that as their top issue. It's among the issues, but it's not at the top. Inflation is at the top right now at 20% of Canadians, with healthcare at 14, housing at 13, and uh, the economy at 11. So building windmills while political le leaders virtue signal at lavish overseas climate conferences doesn't sit well with Canadians who can't find a family doctor or just one paycheck away from losing their homes. And the Trudeau government stubbornly remains blind to the sentiment of Canadians as it continues to pile on more regulations and taxes, contributing to more inflation. And public support for the Liberals continues to collapse. Like I said, if an election was held today, they'd be obliterated. Now, while Canadians are sick and tired of the ineffective Liberal policies raising the cost of living, one has to ask, though, if Canadians are ready to face the austerity that comes with fiscal responsibility. See, among those who polled who felt the country needs to transition away from carbon-based energy generation... Only 5% of them felt the price of that transition should be paid by consumers. Well, 
32% felt that industry should pay for the price uh, for this transition through taxes and regulations. And another 18% felt the government should have to pay for the, the changes. Well, a quarter of the respondents felt nothing should be done and, and the technology will fix things over time. Well, what the mass, vast majority, obviously, of respondents don't seem to understand is they're always ultimately going to be personally paying the bill, no matter which way you do it. There's no magical form of government money generation aside from taxation. Likewise, corporations, they get their funds ultimately from consumers. There's no escaping the fact that individuals eventually end up paying the bill. The only thing people are escaping is reality. Conservative supporters, they have to look at those numbers and remind themselves not to get complacent while the liberal numbers plunge. You see, Clearly, electors are fed up with the liberal government, but it doesn't mean they're ready to embrace austerity either. In the next election, the Trudeau liberals are going to promise to save the world from climate change. They'll promise citizens they won't have to pay the bill to do so. I mean, it'll be a clear lie, but we have a large segment of the population that would rather be lied to than face the hard realities of what they have to pay for. Trudeau can't seem to go a day without another spending announcement, despite the bleak federal outlook and a huge growing federal deficit. These actions aren't simply fiscal incompetence, though. There's, there's plenty of that to be found in the liberal ranks. But no, this is strategic. What they're doing is establishing programs and getting an ever-increasing number of Canadians dependent upon them. They're spending generations, the next generations of Canadians, into debt to try and buy electoral love. And you know what? It might work. You see, conservatives have to campaign carefully. Calling for the elimination of spending programs and entire government departments might sell well to the conservative base. But remember, there's going to be imagery of thousands of people being laid off, and it's going to be tugging at the heartstrings of the Canadian swing voters. Remember, they don't like fiscal reality. They just want more promises and more shiny things. I mean, the conservatives shouldn't give up on campaigning based on fiscal responsibility. This nation desperately needs it, and it'd be disingenuous to hide such intentions while campaigning. They just have to be really careful about it. Canadians need to be eased back into reality. The campaign in the next couple of years needs to be respectfully educational. People need to understand the need for spending restraint and how they're ultimately going to benefit from that. In, in the early 1990s, we faced double-digit interest rates. That shocked voters into supporting balanced budgets as debt servicing costs exploded. And, well, Canada's pouring, what, 40, 50 billion a year into debt servicing? The waste of maintaining such a large debt still isn't number one in the minds of many voters, though it should be. Trudeau liberals have fostered dependency, complacency, and fiscal ignorance among Canadians during their term in power. The conservative government, or conservative, the conservative up-and-comers, need to reverse that damage, but it's got to be done with care. People are seeing the need to get things back in fiscal order, but they still don't understand that they're ultimately going to have to pay all those bills. Trudeau could conceivably campaign on unicorn power and get away with it in 2025 unless the Conservatives have built a voter base of informed realists by then. So until then, guys, don't dance on the grave of the Liberal government yet. Don't take any polls for granted. Uh, like it or not, the Liberals are not out of the picture yet. All right, let's see. Let's check in and see what else is going on out there. We got a treat today. We got reporter Jonathan Bradley giving us the news update and uh, letting us know what's happening out there. How's it going, Jonathan? It's going good, Corey. This is uh, my first time doing the news updates, so don't be too hard on me if I mess up. Oh, I wouldn't be hard on you, Jonathan. At least not on, on camera. <laughs> okay, well, our main story on the site right now is Polyev says Trudeau is the Grinch who stole Christmas. This is because uh, Trudeau went and called a group of senators and had them water down Bill C-234, which would uh, ease the carbon tax on farmers and take it off of certain aspects of that. Um, when it comes to that, uh, Polio said that he's going to ruin Trudeau's Christmas vacation. This is because he's going to submit all these amendments 
to uh, bills to try to get Trudeau to cave on uh, easing the carbon tax. Um, we have a story from our business reporter, Sean Polzer, who has reported that the Climate Action Network, which is a group of kooky environmental activists in Canada, has awarded Alberta the Fossil the Day Award um, at COP28. Usually the award goes to national governments. It's gone to uh, previous liberal and conservative governments, but this is one of the first times that a regional government, uh, such as Alberta, has received it. Oh, um, Premier have, Smith's over there right now. Do you think perhaps she could be convinced to go and accept this award in person? I think that would be pretty uh, uh, outstanding on her part. Well, these activists are at COP28, so I mean, maybe she can get in touch with them and accept the award. Um, we also have a story from our uh, contributor, Lee Harding, about uh, studies finding that net zero would kill the economy. These studies are from the Climate Economic Institute and MIT. Um, a little disappointedly, because usually I'm the one who writes the study find stories. We have another story based uh, in Calgary about a Calgary man who was charged with a hate crime after a threat to an Islamic center. The man left a threatening voicemail to the Islamic Center of Calgary uh, back in October, um, and a hate uh, motivation has been added to uh, the charge. We also have a column from Gage Harbrick about what happened to Saskatchewan surpluses given the Saskatchewan government's uh, large amount of spending it's done over the years. And in no surprise to uh, many music fans, Taylor Swift was named the 2023 Time Magazine Person of the Year. Um, this is because of her era's world tour and the new music she's been releasing. Um, she's definitely created a fan group. I mean, I was disappointed when I get Zach Bryan tickets uh, in Edmonton a few months ago, but uh, Taylor Swift fans had it far worse, so I'm not too upset about that. Um, yeah. Uh, coming up later today, I got a story I'm working on right now about uh, Pixar saying that three of its movies um, will be coming to the big screens because they were released on Disney Plus during the lockdowns. Um, I got a press conference I'm going to be covering soon about flooding relief uh, that Mike Ellis is going to be speaking at. Um, and yeah, we're going to, it's a busy day in the newsroom like it usually is. Great. Well, thanks for bringing us all up to date there, uh, Jonathan. It's much appreciated. Uh, you're always hard at it, hammering out those stories. So <laughs> yeah, I'll let I'm you get busy. back to putting some more out there. And then, uh, yeah, I appreciate the work you're doing. Thank you. Great. Thanks. So that is our, yes, one of our main reporters there, Jonathan Bradley. He's been here for a year. Well, if you're a regular standard reader, you've read all sorts of Jonathan's stories and he, he does a, a great job in there, even if we give him a hard time now and then. No, he's fantastic. And as you see, lots of stuff out there, guys, lots of stuff breaking, lots of stuff already written. This one, I kind of remind you, this is how and when we pay the bills, we are subscription-based. We don't ask for tax dollars and subsidies and things such as that. It's you guys who keep it running. And uh, if you haven't subscribed yet, guys, Get on there, westernstandard.news slash membership. It's $9.99 a month or 100 bucks for a year. And it keeps guys like Sean Polzer, who was mentioned earlier. He writes excellent energy and business uh, articles and our columnist, Nigel Hannaford. And, of course, Jonathan Bradley and myself and others going. So uh, appreciate the subscriptions, guys. And, uh, yeah, keep on it. So, uh, yeah, you know, it's funny with the Taylor Swift thing. I mean, you know, talk about a, a phenomenon. I mean, it's just not uh, – uh, not my kind of music, but I got no beef with it. I mean, I mean, a lot of people just really enjoy it. I just astounded when you see the amount of attention and money 
uh, involved in, in uh, you know, I, I think actually as somebody to pull up as an appropriate, you know, person of the year. I mean, that's where a lot of the dispute comes when it comes with time, what they choose, who is, you know, it used to be the man of the year. Now it's the person of the year. It doesn't necessarily mean it's a good person or a, a person that should be emulated. Not that I think Swift is all that terribly bad. I, I know she's not a hardcore conservative, but that's fine. She's a musician. Uh, but, you know, as somebody who's made an impact, made a lot of news uh, and, and been out there. And I can't remember the, the last time in my, you know, adult life, remembering seeing something as, as huge and sweeping uh, as, as Swift has been. I think she's generating more revenue than a lot of small countries are now. So whatever, not my thing, but good honor. Go for it. Uh, you know, it's brought more attention to uh, Kansas City Chiefs. That's a downside, I guess, among things. But uh, all the same, I'll still... Uh, forgive her that so yes lots going on out there um i i'm just before i get to my guest i want to speak quickly too so it sounds like another thing on the federal front the uh, speaker of the house the new speaker has only been there nine weeks is in the soup apparently he was speaking at a uh, liberal function now and not to say everybody necessarily understands the, the role of a speaker in the house it's supposed to be and i know they, they still come from a party background and uh, they're going to have some partisanship. But when you take on that role, you were supposed to, at the very least, bottle it up. You're supposed to be as impartial as possible. You're supposed to be basically the one and only nonpartisan person in parliament or a legislature where you're at. The only time they vote on any policies is if there's a tie. And there will be the tie-breaking vote. Other than that, they don't take part in debates, you know, aside from moderating them as the speaker. And again, you know, it's so rare when a speaker gets thrown out because it's uh, an honored position We've had one recently lost, you know, over bringing in the, whether he was behind it or not, uh, that, that uh, former uh, Nazi from the Ukraine in the house. And now this gentleman is, uh, Mr. Fergus is, is, is in trouble because he was speaking at a liberal partisan function. I don't know if he should be chucked out for that or not, but it should be considered how serious that position is. And, uh, the right person needs to be put in that job. It really needs to at least appear as nonpartisan as possible and you know just to, to go out and, and start doing partisan work from that position you gotta remember he makes almost three hundred thousand a year to get into that position if you want to see an example of an excellent speaker look to alberta nathan cooper he, he lives for that position he's fantastic a pure policy geek he's been the speaker for a couple of terms now i believe he does excellent videos actually explaining how uh, the legislature works. He's, he's shown an incredible lack of bias while he's in there. It can be done professionally. It can be done with, it should always be done without scandal. Yet somehow this is showing how on the rocks and messed up the government really is federally. They can't even get a speaker in or two speakers in a row without some sort of, of catastrophe or controversy. It's just everything Trudeau touches blows up in his face these days. Every single one. You gotta remember the first day of the new speaker when he was in there, Trudeau was winking at him and, and sticking his tongue out in the in the parliament. It was really weird. It was a, a weird, well, Trudeau's kind of weird in general, but I mean, just an odd exchange between the prime minister and the speaker. Again, you're not supposed to be getting cozy and buddy-buddy with the speaker. That's a person who's supposed to be in an impartial role. And uh, I won't be surprised if he ends up getting thrown out uh, and then we're back into searching for another one. If you remember the tradition of the speaker, it's they go through this charade of having the opposition leader and the prime minister or the premier drag them across the room and force them into the chair because it means they're supposed to set their politics aside, which is hard for politicians. And this new speaker apparently has had trouble doing so. Okay, let's get on to our guest. I see him in the lobby there. He's been on my show before, but it's been quite a while. It's Tim Moen. As I said, he was, he was the leader of the Libertarian Party of Canada, but he's also, I think, uh, 
well, it depends on which we want to call more importantly or less so, but he's been a, a paramedic and a EMS responder and firefighter for a long time. And, and he wrote a fantastic uh, long Substack piece on uh, healthcare reforms and, and uh, some of the AHS and how it's impacting EMS. So thanks for joining us today, Tim. Thanks for having me on. Happy to talk about this. Yeah, no, I really appreciate it because I mean, healthcare. I mean, you, you cover a little of that in the in your piece. You know, it's it's that sacred cow. People are terrified of, of touching mm. it, uh, saying anything aside from throwing more money at the system. Uh, EMS is is one branch of a large large system, and and it's still predominantly going to be managed by AHS, I guess. But you're you're writing on some of the challenges uh, EMS has had and, and perhaps some of the things that could solve it or, or positive things that might be coming from the, these efforts to reform uh, AHS, right? Yeah, well, you're exactly right. I mean, the, the only solution offered by detractors of healthcare reform that Daniel Smith's putting forward, and of course, the, the never-ending cry is for more money, more money, more money. If we just had more money, finally, we could have a good health system. Of course, there's never enough money to satisfy these people. And, and in fact, there's never enough money to fix the problem. Um, you know, the, it's the first law of economics, uh, you know, demand is infinite and supply is scarce. And of course, when you have government providing the supply, it's really scarce uh, because they're just not very good at producing uh, services and, and products. And healthcare is no difference, different, you know, over the past uh, two or three years, we've seen huge staff shortages, certainly in EMS, I, I see it very clearly, but also in uh, the parts of, of the health system that I touch on a regular basis, like eMERGE departments, um, we, we see a huge turnover of nurses and nurses fleeing the healthcare system, paramedics fleeing the healthcare system for uh, greener pastures or something else. Um, you know, and of course, um, it's heavily public sector unionized. So um, these, you know, if you're feeling stressed out at work by your healthcare bosses, um, why come to work when you can get paid to stay at home on stress leave? And that's one of the things that we saw happen, especially during the last two years in the pandemic, when all the things that um, contribute to uh, a toxic work environment were ramped up times 100 under the COVID bureaucracy. Um, you know, if, if you're a manager and you like to manage, I, I mean, the COVID <laughs> pandemic was your time to shine and new rules written every week. Um, it, it was very clear to us that we were objects of compliance, not healthcare practitioners um, that, that with clinical experience exercising our best judgment. And so, um, you know, that wears on people when you get treated like an object of compliance rather than a clinical practitioner that is doing what's best for your patient. Um, well, you start to feel dehumanized and demoralized and the system demoralizes people. And so I certainly see that in EMS. I certainly see that in eMERGE. My wife uh, was an eMERGE nurse, um, but during the pandemic, she was looking for every way to get out of there because all the things that were causing her stress on the job were ramped up times 100. And she found a different position, nursing position that wasn't uh, in that uh, in that eMERGE department uh, stress anymore. Uh, so, you know, I, I don't know if that helps. I, I, I'm trying to remember your question, Corey, but... Um, it's okay. There's a whole lot to unpack in, in general. And that's, that's why I really wanted to get you on because it is a really long piece. And I really want to encourage people to read the, the whole thing because you cover a whole lot of issues. The morale uh, par portion is, is a very important one that people forget. And it doesn't matter what profession you're in. If your morale is in the dumpster, you're not going to do your job as well as you should or, or are capable of. But 
one of the things you, you pointed out in, in your piece right. as well was uh, that Premier Smith basically laid down the law on using paramedics for hallway care, and it seems to have been successful. It's been reduced. Right. But is it a bit of a shell game? Because now I, I know that the, it was an improper use of paramedics, but it was kind of putting a relief valve on the emergency services. Now the yeah. nurses and doctors do have to embrace that, and it could be transferring that stress and, and uh, overwork to another department. Well, it, it definitely is. Uh, there's no doubt about that. And But that's what needs to happen. I, I mean, right now what is happening is, um, you know, let, let's use EMS for an example. Uh, AHS EMS runs directly staffs about half the ambulances in Alberta. The rest are done through contract providers. There's 31 contract providers. Uh, some of them are private providers. The, the service I work for and many of my colleagues work for is an integrated provider. We are a municipal fire department that also does EMS. So we have a contract with AHS to do EMS. Now, it in the work conditions in the contract environment, especially, you know, in municipal uh, fire departments and, and private ambulances are better than work conditions at AHS. Like I said, AHS is a giant bureaucracy and necessarily treats people like they're human resources, like they're, they're cogs in a, in a machine, like they're, they're pawns. And, you know, that, that results in up to, uh, at one point during the pandemic, there was, I, I heard up to 70% of full-time paramedics off at any given time on stress leave. Now you'll never see these numbers published. AHS doesn't want to make them. What they will publish is that we hired more paramedics. And so now staffing levels are up 11.2%. But when only half your ambulances are manned, despite your staffing levels being at an all-time high, it tells a different story. And, and so what would happen is you'd have half the ambulances on in Edmonton that you would normally have because these staff are just burnt out from the system. And all the, the contract providers, the surrounding uh, fire department municipality services, would we, we would spend most of our shift in Edmonton doing calls downtown, dealing with uh, drug addicts and, and marginalized people and all, all the calls that come with that big city. So, um, so, but if you looked at it, the calls were getting responded to. Yes, there were code reds where there were times where there weren't ambulances available. But had you not had those contract providers around the metro area being sucked in, you would have seen very quickly what a catastrophe those metro areas were in the terms of their state of healthcare. And then once you get to the hospital, yes, we were being used as hallway nurses. Uh, that took, takes the load off uh, an already stressed emerge. So we're muddling through uh, you know, altogether, but we were never seeing very clearly where the system is failing, right? So, um, you know, under these new reforms, what I'm hoping is that instead of answering to AHS, we'll answer to uh, acute care, this new organization. And we already know that the Alberta government um, is, is much more uh, amenable to listening to municipalities and their specific healthcare concerns and saying, listen, we want to keep our paramedics and our ambulances in our communities. We're, you're emptying them out. Um, well, once that happens, if they listen to us, which I suspect they will, 
you're going to see very clearly metro regions failing. And that's going to force the kind of changes that need to happen in the system. The change doesn't need to happen in Strathcona County or St. Albert or Spruce Grove or these, these bedroom communities. The change needs to happen in Edmonton Metro. But we don't see that yet because right now we're bailing them out by being, we call it, sucked into the vortex. We're covering all the calls in there for them. So uh, failure needs to happen. It's not going to be pretty. But these reforms are going to show very clearly where the points in the system are that, that are failing. And um, and yeah, you're right. You know, when Daniel Smith came in and they said, OK, we're going to do mandatory 45 minute offloads. Every, all my colleagues kind of rolled their eyes. Like, how many times have we seen AHS try to tackle these hallway weights? And they have. They've done thrown ad hoc solutions that work for uh, a couple of weeks and then they go back to normal. And the reason they go back to normal is that in order to make life easier for EMS or the communities and get ambulances back out the door quickly, that means nursing staff have to do things that they're not comfortable with. They have to put patients in the waiting room and then take on a risk of what happens if that patient goes down in the waiting room. They have to clear patients out of eMERGE quicker. They have, you know, there's all these things that have to happen. They have to have uh, hallway nurses. They literally have hallway nurses in these hospitals now so that if we have a stretcher patient who's um, who's got to wait for a period of time, uh, we don't have to stay there with them. We put them with, you know, there's one hallway nurse looking after, you know, four to eight stretcher patients in the back hallway. Well, these were all things that the system could have done, but it was a hardship on the hospital. And so rather than placing hardship on the hospital, they put hardship on the ambulances and the communities they serve uh, because all these administrators, of course, come from a hospital background. The loudest unions are hospital based. Uh, you know, the everything's based on the physicians and where they're at. And that's the bricks and mortar hospital. So the EMS and the communities uh, were the ones that suffered because of it. But now since Daniel Smith came in, it seems like there's there's this order that, no, you, you got get these ambulances out the door in 45 minutes, make it happen, find a way. And they're finding a way. And a lot of our patients are going to the waiting room because you know, the other day I draw, I had a, a five-year-old kid with a cough and a fever. I don't know why his mom called an ambulance. That's another story. But a lot of our patients aren't, it's not a life and death situation. And they can sit in the waiting room. And it sucks that you're going to have to sit there for 14 hours. And I know you thought if you called 911, you'd get seen faster. But we, we have a system of healthcare lines and you've got your spot in line now. You're going to have to wait. But uh, I hope that kind of answers the question. It does. And it means there's still a problem to be dealt with within the hospitals, but at least they've taken away one stopgap that they shouldn't have been using in the first place, which right. was the EMS workers. Um, as, as one of the commenters, Jim, uh, points out, is, you know, as long as Canadians can walk into any healthcare facility without a dime in their pocket, the system's always going to be broken and overwhelmed. It's similar to what you said before. You know, there's infinite demand, but we, we've got limited uh services you know credit where due i'm not a big union fan in general but the the union for the ems workers was doing great with putting it out there showing uh, maps with uh showing the the, the the ambulances responding from distant locations we'd see them coming from banff to a, a calgary call or right. i live in Pritis and i could see that my ambulance in my little community spends probably 80% of its time in the city of Calgary. It's actually not very often that it's based in Pritis. that's another problem now that still has to be dealt with right Right, right. Well, exactly right. And and so HSAA is the union that uh, covers paramedics that are employed with AHS. Um, and, and of course, they're pointing out the problems in the system to 
get more money and resources, right? That that's what their primary, primary thing is. But yes, it's good to know there's a problem out there. They they say that the answer is more money. I say not so fast. Um, when that that money is getting used to pay for staff that are only there half the time because of their st the stress the system places on them, I'm not sure that's money well spent. Meanwhile, my union is I think doing an excellent job. Our our uh, you know, this is a, a case where our interests align across the board. I think Albertans, uh, me as as a, an, a firefighter paramedic, theirs as a union trying to get more membership and more uh, clout, um, they all align. And, and our union, the uh, International Association of Firefighters or the Alberta, I can't remember, there's a provincial body that covers municipal fire departments with the IAFF. But they, we've been demanding that we get more local control that our uh practitioners stay get to stay within their communities rather than get continually redeployed and pulled out of their communities to cover uh com other communities that aren't ours and um they've been lobbying for this for quite a while and so they point out the same si system I issues as hsaa but they have a different prescription and they have a subscription that i think you and i would more aptly agree with which is decentralized things just give us the power back things were better when the municipality controlled these resources and what you when you just release the chains like we're not asking for more money here just take the take the chains off us and let us do our thing you know i was a project manager for a year on a, a locally initiated program called the community care paramedic program our municipality wanted it and uh the municipality actually got the idea from the health minister at the time, who was an NDP health minister who said, hey, what do you think of community paramedics? And we love the idea. And, and it was a, a solution to the problem we were facing, which is we're, we're dealing with a lot of urgent care patients. They didn't need to go to an eMERGE, but they weren't mobile enough to go to their family doctor. They needed care, but they needed care in their home before it became an emergent problem. And community care paramedics would go into homes and they would treat pay people right in place and they would get on the phone to the primary care physician run diagnostic tests draw blood facilitate prescriptions make sure that that cough in a copd patient didn't develop into a life-threatening pneumonia in a week and uh we were well on our way to getting this program implemented we had all the stakeholders i had done a year's worth of work pulling data ensuring we were getting uh we we're determining exactly where the need was in our community, but we just could not get permission from AHS. Now the Alberta Health Ministry, Alberta Health, the ministry was all in favor of this and they were they were pushing for us. Unfortunately, the champion we had in the ministry went off on uh, maternity leave at a key time and we couldn't uh, get them to, to force AHS to play ball with us. AHS ultimately wouldn't approve the pro project. And once you understand uh, the system and you understand what how how those managers minds work you probably would be sympathetic to them because they are charged with uh an impossible task they have to not only provide health care for all albertans in an equitable way and dis distribute resources and treat all alberta as one giant homogenous blob um, they not only have to provide services but they also have to deal with contract providers and all this stuff now wouldn't you rather just not have to deal with figuring out how much money you can send Strathcona County and how am I going to oversee this and how am I going to deal with all the headaches that that causes. I'm ultimately responsible for this. I don't know what they're going to do. I don't know these people. They're not my employees. 
uh, I, I, we'll just look at, you know what, we're just going to do this ourselves down the road. Probably won't be as good as what you guys <laughs> will do. But so you can kind of understand the mindset of, of AHS uh, and, and where they come come from. But, you know, now this is changing because the, the these reforms are taking a lot of the, the powers away from AHS. And this should actually be, AHS should be applauding this. They should be thankful for this because they don't have to now do all these things. They can just focus on providing service. They don't have to focus on distributing funds. They don't have to focus on, uh, you know, dealing with contractors and, and they can just focus on one thing. And, and you can let us in our municipality talk to acute care, the government organization, and, you know, hopefully get these kind of programs approved without have AHS roadblock us all the time. Yeah, we'll give him one one less ball to juggle. And well, Premier Smith does seem to be the most receptive premier we've seen in a long time, ready to take on some of those tough, uh, monolithic bureaucracies. So hopefully that that carries on with the the, the path she started. Uh, I'll kind of pivot away from there. It's something you didn't talk a lot about actually in your piece, but a couple of people mentioned that in the questions. It's a different factor today. Uh, you know, wondering what percentage of the EMS calls are dealing with uh, overdoses and drug addiction. I mean, the the opioid uh, issue is is huge and growing. I mean, addiction always been there overdoses have always been there but nothing nothing like we see today and that's got to be taking a large part of, of emergency resources on all levels it's a huge huge part of our our call volume for sure um you know i've seen patients i've, I've gone to overdoses uh, where i'm resuscitating someone who's on the brink of death meanwhile uh there's someone else about to inject themselves with the same uh the same batch of, of fentanyl that this person overdosed on and you warn them and you say this person overdosed on that same stuff uh, you, and, and they they push it anyways and then now you're pushing narcan on that person it's it's just uh it's an unending uh onslaught of of overdoses uh, it's it is insane and and um you know i i wonder uh, i'm very curious about daniel smith's solution to this i mean the idea of being to round these people up and force them into um, some kind of treatment. I mean, that might be what's necessary here. I, I don't know, but uh, certainly not enabling them um, it would be a good start, right? And and actually enforcing laws about uh, you know public trespassing, intoxication, littering, uh, pooping on the streets, putting up tents. I mean you know, some pressure needs to be put on these people rather than simply here's a nice warm place uh, for you to crash. And here's a, a ton of safety nets for you paid for by the taxpayers so that you can feel free to do drugs, dangerous drugs out in the open um, without any, any consequences. You don't have to bear any of the responsibility of doing drugs. We'll take that on because we're nice, good hearted people. Well, at some point, uh, responsibility has to be put back on these people and they have to take some accountability. How to do that, that's a good question. Yeah, well, I've had other guests and that's another whole giant complicated area, but I mean, it's a real pressure. When when you're responding to an overdose, you could be missing out then on somebody else who's having a heart attack or a car accident that happened. I mean, the, the resources are limited. So if we could try and figure yeah. out the way, any ways that we can bring pressures off, the, you know, that's one of them to, to address, but that'd be a whole separate thing. But, but Premier Smith, again, is looking to take a whole new approach with that, and I'm certainly hoping for the best with it. Uh, but yeah, it is a big 
an overwhelming issue, but it's important to everybody. I mean, uh, people don't think about EMS sometimes until they actually need it and realize that suddenly it's the most important service in their life. And uh, you want it as, as close and, and as effective and, and ready as possible. So to, to get the whole picture before I let you go, you know, where can we get uh, your article on that and, and see further things that you're going to write and talk about, Tim? Sure. Well, you can follow my podcast, The Tim Moen Show, on wh wherever you like to consume podcasts, Rumble, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes. Um, and you can go to my Substack. Uh, that would be a great way to follow up. I, I don't write very often, but when I do write, I, I usually have a lot to say, and it's usually um, pretty well thought out. So you can go to my Substack. It's uh, Tim Moen, uh, I believe, on Substack. You can find it there. Yeah, it's uh, timmoen.substack.com. So uh, great. Well, thanks for joining us today, Tim. It's always great to get you on. It's, uh, it's part of our problems. Our segments are too short to cover something that big, but it gives people a, a taste yeah. of what you've been writing about and, and uh, a path to, to find out more. So I, I really appreciate the work you've done uh, uh, out on the field and, and uh, on, on social media so we can see what's going on out there. Thanks, Corey. Appreciate the opportunity. All right. Thanks, Tim. Hope we talk again soon. So yes, that was Tim Moen. And just that reminder, you can look it up for the podcast, uh, Tim Moen and all those sites. And uh, yeah, timmoen.substack.com. As you can hear from him, he's got, you know, some solution-based thinking. He just wants to make things better. And uh, we see some of the people uh, commenting. And yes, uh, you know, Paradoxy saying had to go to court for a mandated mental health assessment of a family member. Uh and uh, Wildrose saying the opioid epidemic's gotten to the point it's almost uh, unsolvable without, you know, sort of with stepping on people's rights. Uh, I, I think perhaps it was meant without, but yeah, what do we do? What do we do? You know, enablement is failing. It's failing. I mean, it, it, Tim pointed that out, you know, literally you can't reason with an addict. I mean, you could be resuscitating one right here and here's the, the, the person next to them taking the same drug when they just saw what happened to their friend. They're not, they're beyond reason. And when you were speaking about mental health and going to courts, you see, we don't want to put, we never want to incarcerate somebody lightly. And it's always a last resort, whether it's a mental health issue or an addiction issue, both of which are very closely related. A lot of people who find themselves seriously addicted had underlying mental health issues, perhaps that were untreated in the first place that led to that. And we want people to have their liberty whenever possible, but there are every province has an act they'll have a mental health act and there'll be a condition for when you can hold somebody against their will if and when they will harm they feel that they will harm somebody or themselves and you can't think of of you know if somebody's heavily addicted to fentanyl living on the streets because we get those discussions people saying well you can't force rehab on somebody it never works well it's not true it's not that it never works but it doesn't work as well as when somebody brought themselves in willingly. Absolutely not. No. But you're at your last resort by then. We're not, you know, Premier Smith and others, they're not talking about going in and, and grabbing people when they're, when they're addicted, but perhaps still functional. They're talking about once they've hit the streets, once they've hit bottom, when they're sleeping behind the dumpsters, when they're freezing to death. We haven't had a hard, cold snap yet. And we will. And there's going to be a lot of amputations. There's going to be a lot of deaths. You see them out there, people who go downtown, people who go on transit. You see them, they call it nodding. They take the fentanyl and they just nod off and pass out. Well, they'll do that when it's minus 30 and they will die. So as, as, as Jordan said, desperate times call for desperate measures. If we have to intervene and pick them up and force them into a facility, I think we should. What, enablement doesn't work. Giving them more drugs doesn't work. Uh, 
or the ridiculousness of it. They've even had in Toronto labeled crack and meth pipes. Come on, guys. Uh, as Tim was pointing out with EMS, I mean, part of it's the whole environment of it, the complete lack of personal responsibility, that feeling we're given, the disorder. They're letting them take over the streets, letting them own them, letting them own transit. In Edmonton, I don't know if it's addiction related, but it shows some of that disorder and what's going on because, of course, it was the Edmonton Coliseum Stadium. I went touring that just a couple weeks ago. I talked about that here. And uh, two 12-year-old girls beat a disabled woman nearly to death. But you're in this dystopian, lawless environment full of graffiti and discarded drug waste and passed out people and people tripping balls and going nuts. Well, it's not doing any favors. But getting back to the whole works of it, yeah, with what Tim was talking about and our healthcare, our emergency services, because we don't want emergency services to stop responding to overdose calls. Those are our kids, our cousins, our spouses, you name it. You know, these are people out there. They, they might be on their last leg. They're addicted. They're having big problems. But we do want to help them. We also want to help everybody else. So getting back to what Tim wrote about, though, you know, healthcare, it's the biggest issue on the mind of Canadians. Or as I, I wrote, those, those polls showed, actually, I think healthcare was second when you're talking in the listings of it. But when you get provincial polls, because it's provincial jurisdiction, it's almost always uh, healthcare on top. So it's great. You know, Premier Smith, and it's interesting when it's an order from above saying, look, get those ambulances back on the road. No more hallway care. As Tim said, you, you should expect well, they'll roll their eyes and nothing but change. But no, it worked. They, they, they did start taking them in. They've got a lot more ambulances on the street. But that also tells us there was some inefficiency going on in the hospital in the first place. There's room to move. I mean, it doesn't mean there's a lot of room. The hospitals are overworked too. Uh, I, I won't go into it, but I've been recently going to, to Foothills quite regularly to see somebody. And, and yeah, that place is packed. And those people are running hard in there. And... We don't have much more. We were hearing on the news, I think Montreal got overwhelmed. Uh, Fort McMurray shut down its emergency for some hours because they didn't have nurses available. But we're spending, spending, spending. So, I mean, spending isn't the solution. We've got, we're one of the highest spending healthcare systems on the planet. And we've got some of the worst outcomes on the planet when it comes for waiting times, access, and, and uh, ability. Once people get in, you know, we got some fantastic healthcare professionals, great doctors, great nurses, everything from the pharmacist to physiotherapist is a big machine with a lot of nuts and bolts. Even the people who are cooking the food or, or maintaining the place, but we're not utilizing it to its best uh, ability because we're afraid of change. People get their backs up whenever anybody talks about reform, but we've got to. And it's good to hear somebody like Tim come from the front line. The literal one. Like I said, he's on the ground. He has to get up in the morning or his night shift or whatever it might be, get into that ambulance and see what's happening directly in the system right there from when somebody's injured or, or, or has a you know some sort of condition or something has happened to the point of when they're at a healthcare facility. And there's still a whole lot downstream that needs to be worked on. But uh, it's good to see some efforts going to be made in Alberta. And we've got to stand up and support the efforts for reform, because this is where the biggest pushback is going to come. This is where the unions and Rachel Notley are going to think they've found the wedge issue to take over Alberta again, and the unions and the Rachel Notleys and Gil McCowans of, of the rest of the provinces across Canada are going to want to do the same things. Uh, just so people know who are from out of province, Gil McCowan is the head of the Alberta Federation of Labor. He's a lunatic, and he also has a guaranteed seat on the NDP uh, provincial executive because that's the way their socialist party is structured. So 
they want to scare people. They want to say that your healthcare is going to be ruined. They want to say that, you know, you're going to have to pay with a credit card to get any care. And they're going to say all of that stuff. And they're going to do all that fear mongering. And they're going to say, or one of their favorites, you want to Americanize the system. No, no, maybe Sweden eyes or uh, Ireland eyes or, you know, whatever, because we got dozens and dozens of countries with universal systems, which means everybody's covered. Nobody gets turned away. But yes, yes, I'm going to say it, the P word, private. There's going to be more private involvement. I mean, right now she's just working on breaking up the bureaucracy, and I think that's a step one. It's the, it was this giant, bloated Alberta Health Services bureaucracy, intractable, difficult to move things, difficult to get things done. Tim even said, you know, you can feel a bit sympathetic. They've got a big task that are put ahead of them. And, uh, you know, here you go, get this done, and yet you're limited in what you can actually do to do it. So with it being split up, perhaps we'll see more creativity, more efficiency. There are things that can be found before we get to the point of privatizing some services and such. But uh, eventually that is what we're going to have to do. You know, I'm looking forward to a lot more of what, because you see, there's other premiers, you know it. There's other healthcare leaders, there's people across the country. They've always been too scared to try what Premier Smith's trying. They want to try it. They want to fix their, because every province has the same problem. NDP provinces, liberal provinces, conservative provinces, it doesn't matter. They're all overwhelmed because Canada's system sucks. May as well say it outright, it sucks. So they're letting her put her neck out. And if what Smith does works, they will follow. That's part of why the unions are terrified too. They do not want it to work. There's one of my fears is union activists sabotaging the reforms to make sure they don't work. And that's part of why she has to break up, as Paradoxy is saying, to break up that big, giant, ugly bureaucracy, confuse them, decentralize their leadership, take away their ability to keep dragging their feet and slow rolling on reforms and changes. She's doing things more strategically than people give her credit for. And I really think it's going to pay off. But of course, it's going to take a while. These things don't happen fast. It was interesting to see those EMS times change as quickly as they did, though. And uh, changing some of that... Uh, decentralization as well. I like what Tim talked about, right? What he was trying to set up. He's talking about getting communities to have community care people who could even, they're trained people, but come into your home because you don't necessarily need a ride to the hospital. If you're a senior and your heart is racing, but it turns out that maybe just some aspirin and a little bit of other things could calm you down. You didn't actually have a full cardiac episode. You don't need to go to the hospital. Great. And if somebody shows up and they say, whoa, this is something serious, we will call the truck, get you out there, fine. It speeds it up for everybody. Likewise with the nurse practitioners, one of the things that Daniel Smith was talking about, nurse practitioners getting out there, taking over some of that primary care because there's a whole lot of things going on we don't need a full-out doctor to do. But our system's structured where you always have to go to the doctor. When your kid has the sniffles, you don't necessarily need to see a doctor. If you got a minor sprain, I mean, you know, countless, countless relatively small injuries or, or, or less uh, dangerous things, or they might develop into others. Nurse practitioners are still professionals. They could say, whoa, no, I'm not taking care of that lump, but I will refer you to the person who should. And again, it takes pressure off that system because we're not using it well. We're not using it properly right now. And everybody's suffering for it, despite the amount we're spending. So yeah, let's, let's hear from more people like Tim. Let's uh, see more efforts from people like Premier Smith. And uh, I think, you know, Alberta's system can be reformed and fixed up and it can be a, an example to, to show for the rest of the country too that we can change the system and fix things up for everybody. Okay, so that leaves it on kind of a positive note. You know, I talked about the risks of Justin Trudeau uh, managing to get his butt reelected in Canada due to a uh, poorly informed electorate. 
but I'll finish it up, like I said, and saying, hey, but we've got some positive things happening, some people trying to do some good things and with some courage uh, out there. And uh, hopefully we see it successful and emulated elsewhere. So thank you all guys for tuning in today. Don't forget, go to the westernstandard.news slash membership, get a membership, see all of the stories, see all the columns, my columns, Nigel's columns, the rest of this stuff. And uh, tune in a little later. The pipeline will be on. We'll have our panel talking about a number of issues. And be sure to come back next week at this time. And uh, we'll do this all over again with a new guest and a whole new bunch of things to discuss. Thanks. Canadian Shooting Sports Association. Without the CSSA, our gun rights would have been taken long, long ago. These guys are on the front lines helping to draft smart and intelligent firearms regulations and legislation in Canada. And more importantly, educating the public about how we keep guns out of the hands of the wrong people. You become a member, it's absolutely worth every penny.